Hello and welcome to radio. I'm Ray Weaver. And man, have things changed over the last couple of days. Those of you that have been on board since the beginning when I started this little project a couple of three weeks ago know that I intended it to be kind of like a freeform radio show, radio talk show, like I used to love to listen to back in the old days. Just great radio guys like Gene Shepard and other folks that I just love to listen to that you just don't hear anymore in these days of corporate radio and a computer telling you what to say and when to say it, what drops to use and what lines to use, literally down to absolutely the number of syllables that you you use. And I I actually left radio because I couldn't do that, man. I started out in the 70s when it was free form and we were picking our own records and we were doing, you know, we, we did our shows, we did our patter, we talked, we introduced stuff, we interviewed local artists. It was radio, it was fun. So I started this as a way to tell some stories about my days back in Gloucester, Virginia and other places that I worked on the radio. And it was just going to be a labor of love, just fun. I never had any idea how long each show was going to be. I never had any idea how many I was going to do. I wanted it to be kind of like a radio show. So I thought, okay, I'll do a bunch, you know, I'll do maybe one a day, maybe one every other day. And just, there's no length, you know, it's free form. I'm just sitting here talking to you, occasionally grabbing my guitar and playing a song or whatever. And if you look at the podcast as it's been so far, there's been maybe a podcast every other day, and then some of them have been five minutes long, some of them have been 20 minutes long, 10 minutes long. Well, guess what? That's all got to change now because I got a nice email from a fellow that runs CPL Online Radio in Cedarburg, Wisconsin. And he wants to run the podcast at least once a week on the air. He wants to have content on the air for one hour at a time, maybe two hours at a time every week. So I have to like tighten up, man. I have to do a 58-minute show every time. And I'm surely not going to do a 58-minute show every night. I mean, I could because if you know me, I can sit here and talk for 58 minutes without even thinking twice about it. But I think twice a week is enough for an hour's worth of podcast content. So what we're shooting for now, we're going to keep on doing the same freeform thing. We're going to talk about whatever pops into my head. As it progresses, we'll do different things, maybe have some folks come on with me and talk about stuff. Right now, it's just me telling my stories, playing my songs, and basically doing the same thing we did before. Now I just have to do it a lot longer, and you have to hang in a lot longer while I'm going through these stories about being on the radio, living in the United States of America in the 1970s. It was an amazing time. It was I was young. I graduated from high school in 1973. No, there were no dinosaurs roaming the earth at the time, but it was a different time. Well, maybe some of the cars were dinosaurs. And I was, I left high school. I went right to a trade school. I went to broadcasting school. I didn't go to college yet. I wanted a job. I'd always wanted to be on the radio. I always wanted to be a disc jockey. And oh, by the way, speaking of that, this is the great thing about this. Like I said, when I mess up, I'm going to tell you, I called the guys that were on my local radio station, 1590 AM, 1600 WISZ in Glen Burnie, Maryland, when I was a kid. I called them the good guys. I said they, they, their, their tagline for themselves were the good guys. Well, that was wrong, man. 
Of course, it was W-I-S-Z. They were the wise guys. Come on, I don't even have any idea how I missed that. They were the wise guys. And I loved to listen to them. I loved to listen to them in the morning when morning radio was this thing, you know, where the guy was there, he's spinning records, and there's a guy over there doing news. And, and then some, you know, it was just full service radio. You listen to the radio for the weather, the news, the music, maybe a little pattern, maybe a little humor. And I, I used to sit in the kitchen with my mom. And my mom was a, was a big smoker at the time, and she's got an L&M cigarette hanging from her lower lip and curlers in her hair, and she's walking around with the women in those days, and curlers on. It's got a scarf on her head because she slept with the curlers for whatever reason. I don't, I don't know, but I think I'm pretty sure my mom had some sort of stock in Aquanet uh, hairspray because, boy, did she, she use it up back in the day. Anyway, she's got this cigarette dangling from her lip, and she's walking around. She's making breakfast, and there's like really no easy way to say this. My mom was the most wonderful mom in the world, and when she wanted to be, she could be a pretty good cook, but she very rarely wanted to be. She just wanted to get the food done. So she's making scrambled eggs for me to go to school, and maybe it's a half scrambled egg. You know, the, the egg hits the plate, and the egg white is still right there, and then some of this mashed up stuff over here is a little yellow. And, uh, of course, she cooked it in either, you know, bacon grease or lard or whatever sitting by the stove, so it's it's laying there looking like some sort of, oil slick or something, some creature that's going to show up in the X-Files some years later. And at the same time she's doing that, she's packing my lunch for school, which was always exactly the same thing. Every single day, brown bag with a bologna or spiced ham sandwich with mayonnaise on uh, blue ribbon bread. Blue ribbon bread is, is what we had there in Maryland where I lived. A butterscotch crimpet and a bag of Utz, had to be Utz potato chips. And that was my lunch pretty much for eight, nine years when I went to school, not one ounce of anything healthy or resembling a vitamin or a mineral, pretty much in any of it. And yet I managed to survive. So there's mom. We're listening to WIZ on the radio. We're listening to the country music. And I just, I loved it. And they're playing the country songs, Merle Haggard, Hank Williams, Senior, Cal Smith, Patsy Cline, Tammy Juanette, hearing Tammy sing D-I-V-O-R-C-E and just listening to the song going, wow. Some guy wrote a song or somebody's, at this time, I, I figured, you know, the person that was singing the song wrote the song, of course. So she wrote a song where she's rhyming it and she's using letters. That is just outrageously brave. So, you know, so I listened to that. And then there was also a really great pop station, rock station, top 40 station, as they called them in the day in Baltimore, WCAO. And CAO was, was uh, 60 AM. It's all AM stuff. I'm not even thinking about FM radio at this point. I don't think anybody was thinking about FM radio at this point. FM radio was kind of like, you know, guys introducing classical music. That's Montevani. And, you know, that, that kind of thing, which had no interest to my young rock and roll soul. The great DJs on, on WCAO, the great Johnny Dark, who became a friend of mine later on in life, Jack Edwards, Robert C. Allen III. These folks were people that I knew. They were people that I listened to on the radio and, they had contests, you know, and you would call them up to try to win the contest. And I was one of those annoying little kids that called the DJs to try to talk to them. And occasionally, Bob Allen, Robert C. Allen III, and Jack Edwards and Johnny, they, they would talk to me. And they would talk to me about being in radio. And 
the great thing about CAO, yeah, it was a top 40 station, but you were just as likely to hear Henson Cargill singing Skip a Rope as you were to hear the Beatles or the Stones. And Johnny introduced the Beatles to Baltimore at the Baltimore Civic Center. This was a major part of my life. So anyway, that's just a long-winded thing to say that I didn't want to go to college, man. I wanted to go on the radio. I figured these guys are on the radio. They're superstars. Everybody knows their name in town. They must be making bank. They must be making a lot of money. They were not. Found out that later on. They were, they were barely getting by, but it didn't matter because I loved it so much. So I went to a trade school. I went to a broadcasting school, the Broadcasting Institute of Maryland, which was run by a fellow named John Jeppy. Mr. Jeppy has passed away, a victim of the whole COVID-19 epidemic. And John was a, he was an amazing guy. Now, some of these stories are going to cross over, as we talked about before. This is free form. It's not in any chronological order, Lord knows. And sometimes I'll be talking about something I talked about a couple of episodes ago, and then I'll be backfilling some of the information I left out because that's the way my head works. And John was, he ran the school and you had to audition to be accepted to BIM. You had to make an audition tape. You had to make a tape, a quarter inch reel tape. And you had to take it up and he had to listen to it and then decide whether you were going to go to the broadcasting school or not. So I made my audition tape and I don't think there's any smell that I can recall that I loved as much as when you opened up a brand new box, took the cellophane off the outside, a brand new box of tape, of recording tape, quarter inch recording tape. It just had this this smell, this almost sweetness, this pungent, this, it just, it's impossible to describe. You almost had, you had to do it. You had to smell it. So anyway, I made a tape of me doing some sort of, there, there was a list of the things you were supposed to do. You were supposed to introduce a couple of records and read a news thing and maybe read a commercial, make up a spot, commercial spot or whatever, and take it into John. Had to be five minutes long or so, and then take it into Mr. Jeppy and, and take it in and, um, he would listen to it and then decide whether you were going to be part of that class of the Broadcasting Institute of Maryland. And I would it be 1974. I made my tape and I took it up to the school, which was in Baltimore. And now, remember, I'm basically a suburban country rural boy. I lived out in the sticks, you know, outside of Baltimore, in between Baltimore and Annapolis in a little suburb that grew out of a summer place kind of thing down on the water on the Magathy River. I lived out there. I I didn't go to the city. I went into the city with my dad to see Orioles baseball games. But dad drove in and we would go in and park and see the Orioles games. I mean, I had to go into the city on my own now. I had to go in. I had to take a bus. I had to take the number 14 bus out of where I lived. I had to take that bus into Baltimore to Howard Street, and then take another bus up to Homeland Avenue. And maybe I had to take two buses and transfer and use transfer tickets. I, I had no idea how to do any of this stuff, man. None of this stuff. I barely had a driver's license at this point because I didn't do so well at driver's ed either. School was not really my thing in, in many ways. So anyway, I, I finally managed to get there, get there on time. I was a teenager. I was a 70s teenager. So... I walk in and I've got this tape in my hand to meet 
Mr. Jeppy, John Jeppy, the president of the Broadcasting Institute of Maryland, and I, I take my tape and I give it to him. And he interviews me a little bit and asks me about why I want to be on the radio. John was a was an imposing fellow. He was a very imposing fellow. He had been a he had been a broadcaster. He'd been a sports broadcaster. He was a big sports guy, and he had also been a, a teacher at uh, I want to say. I can't remember, but he's a teacher at a, at a Catholic school. He was a big fella. He 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 looked like somebody that had played football and um, was imposing, good shape, buzz cut hair, but friendly. I mean, he had a smile, but you could tell that he was in charge and he knew he was in charge. So I handed the tape and here I am, 70s kid. I'm sitting there in a pair of blue jeans. I may have even had flip-flops on because it was summer. I just got out of high school and I wanted to go to the Broadcasting Institute. I want to go to BIM the next September. So I had to meet with him over the summer. So I may have even had flip-flops on. I know I had blue jeans on and probably some sort of rock and roll t-shirt, T-Rex, the Stones, something. I go in and my hair is down to my shoulders. I did not have any earrings or anything, no piercings or anything, but definitely hair down to my shoulders and this half-ass scruffy beard that I thought I was growing. And uh, (laughs) so I go in and... um, I give him a tape, and he talks to me a little bit. He plays a tape, and I can't even begin to tell you how bad that tape was. I can't, I mean, I cannot, it was so incredibly horrible. My voice was way up here somewhere, and I was trying to be so clever with the patter, and you know, this is, this is your old friend Ray on the radio, and I, oh gosh, oh my God, it was bad. And um, he listened to it, and I'm sure it was one of hundreds that he listened to over the years, so he didn't say anything didn't say much, didn't make any comments as he went along. And he looked at me and he goes, well, you have some talent. You have some talent. If you'd like to come to BIM, I'd like to offer you a spot. Now, years later, I realized he didn't hear any talent on that tape. But what he could see in my eyes, what he could feel in me, I think, was the desire. I wanted to do this so bad. And we talked a lot about... uh, people that I liked and people he listened to people that I liked and and we we kind of had that mutual late night listening to the talk show listening to sportscasters talking about the people that we liked he was a big fan of people like Vince Bagley and people like that sportscasters that I liked he listened to Gene Shepard he listened to a lot of the people that I admired the the Harley hour where they played jazz but they 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 did a lot of information about the music and I always liked it was going to be a radio show it was going to be a music show I loved those disc jockeys, those announcers that would tell you about what you were listening to, that knew about what the songs you were hearing. And so we kind of agreed on that. And um, so he offered me a spot. I took it and then promptly set about trying to figure out how the hell I was going to pay the tuition because it wasn't a free school. I mean, it was a trade school and you had to pay to go. But I went and so we talked about it and he said, so you're hope to see you in September. Here's a bunch of stuff for you to fill out and sign. Well, I couldn't sign it because I was only 17. So my dad had to sign it to guarantee the the fact that I was going to pay the tuition and and all of that stuff. And then John looked at me and he said, um, now, Raymond, he always called me Raymond. Mr. Jeppy was one of the few people in the world that ever got away with calling me Raymond all the time. And he called me Raymond right up until the day he passed away because we were still in contact. And he said, Raymond? Here at uh, the Broadcasting Institute of Maryland, gentlemen are required to wear jackets and ties to class. And I'm looking at him going, what? 
in the broadcasting industry, if you watch television or you see people on radio or you, you get a chance to go to radio stations and uh, people wear jackets and ties. And here at the Broadcasting Institute of Maryland, gentlemen are required to attend class wearing jackets and ties. And I was like, but I don't own any. I, you know, I'm a country rural rock and roll kid. I have no use for a jacket or a tie. So that was something else to figure out. And it's funny because I look at look I look back on it now and I think it's crazy. We're going to this school. Now the school was basically a classroom above an empty space in a annex building across from the College of Notre Dame in Baltimore on Homeland Avenue. It was not really a school. It was just space that they had turned into a school and cobbled together a sort of radio studio and a sort of TV studio for TV students. And it was not new. It was not fancy. It was not high tech. And here's this guy telling me I got to wear a jacket and tie. It's like, come on, man. But those were the rules. And so I went, my parents didn't have any money. My, my dad was a working class guy. My, we were a working class family with, with, with four kids. So I went to the Salvation Army and I found a blue and white sport jacket. This jacket was a blue and white check affair. The only thing that you might be able to get in your mind that it looked like was uh, maybe the seats of a 65 Chevy, blue and white checked, and some of the ugliest, widest ties known to man, also at the Salvation Army. And the most incredible thing, now this was just a jacket. I was looking around for some, maybe some other stuff that I could wear because, you know, I didn't want to wear the same jacket every day. I pretty much wound up doing that. But so I went to another like Goodwill or Salvation Army store and damned if I didn't find the pants to match that jacket. So here I have this horrendously ugly blue and white check jacket, these equally horrendously ugly blue and white check pants. Now, none of this fit me. None of this fit me. You know, the jacket was too small. The pants were too big. The ties were too wide. Some of them they were pink and fuchsia and blue and gigantic. These those, those ties from the fifties that you could use as a life raft. Of your, it was ugly. And I had a few shirts with collars. This was my school attire, but I never did get dress shoes. I just wore my tennis shoes or cowboy boots. I was big on cowboy boots in the day. So I would turn up at BIM and Mr. Jeppy and the other instructors would look at me and they were like, yeah, I, I don't have any, any idea what they were thinking, but my, my thought is, my God, is he really walking around looking like that with my hair down to my shoulders and this horrible suit that I wore? But... You had to wear a jacket and tie. And now some of these other guys that, that, you know, they were, they were navy blue blazers and they looked great and they had the right 
ties and the right because they came from a different place than I did. They came from town. They were town guys. I was not a town guy, and and they they had the right jackets and right. They were and you could tell right away they were going to be the the top students of the class. There was no danger I was going to be one of those. But um, they were they were all natally attired and well dressed. But the the thing that I had gone for me was I really wanted to do it. I really wanted to get better, and so. There I am in the Broadcasting Institute of Maryland. That's how it started. And the, the main thing is they tried really hard to give you an idea of what it would be like on your first job when you got out to go to Shippensburg, Pennsylvania, or Gloucester, or Matthews, Virginia, or Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, or some tiny place in Maryland where you're going to work on a radio station that is probably a daytimer. Now, a daytimer... I probably should explain this. We pretty much universally wound up going to these small AM radio stations. And a lot of us that actually got jobs because the school had a placement service. If you graduated, one of the things that they told you, if you graduated and you did well and, and you did all the stuff you were supposed to do, they would help you find that first gig. They had a placement service. And I was not anywhere near the top of the class. I was pretty close to the bottom not so much because i wasn't good at it or what wasn't but i just you know i had that slacker thing going on before there was such a thing as a slacker i was like i'm not doing all this silly stuff. but anyway so anyway they, i wound up going to a thousand watt daytimer now a thousand watt daytimer radio station am station a thousand watts is not a lot of power the big stations the the ones that everybody wsm and WLS and all of the big radio stations are 50,000 watts. And they're at positions on the dial that, that dial that allow that signal to travel over the country. That's why you can hear the Grand Ole Opry all over the place. That's why you could hear great records and stuff being played on these great New York and Chicago radio stations. And I could hear Gene Shepard. I could hear you know all of the talk show guys that I loved at night because the power was there. You know, and we had a thousand watts and we were. A daytimer. What that meant was, is our transmitter, we started broadcasting when the sun came up and we had to turn off that transmitter and be off the air at sundown local time. Now, in the winter, that meant sometimes we were on the air from seven o'clock in the morning or around there till 4.40, five o'clock in the afternoon, whatever local sundown was. WDDY was a Baltimore Orioles affiliate. We were the affiliate station down there for the Orioles in that part of Virginia. So folks would be listening to a ball game. And if sundown came when the ball game was still going on, the ball game went off in the middle of the third inning. The ball game went off in the sixth inning. And as the summer went on, of course, we could stay on later and later and later and later. And we could get more of the game in. But there were many, many times when the folks would be listening to the game and we'd be shutting it off. And, of course, they'd be calling, asking if we'd lost our minds, what the hell was wrong with us, whatever the ball game, especially on a Sunday when it was a doubleheader. Oh, my gosh. But anyway, so it's a daytimer. I went down there. I, I'd been to a couple of other. They used to send us down in pairs or, or, or three people like, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or something. They would send down two or three different guys to each station that had an opening. And uh, I went down with some of the most talented folks in the class. And I didn't get any jobs. 
I didn't get any offers. My friends did. They were working, and I was still, I think I was still working at a local record store. Yeah, I was. I was still working at a record store when Mr. Jeppy called me and said, I got you a job at uh, WDDY in Gloucester, Virginia. And I'm like, where the hell is that? I mean, I have no, <laughs> Tidewater, Virginia, no idea where it is. So I look it up, and it's, you know, it's a wide spot in the road. I think at the time I went down there, there was literally one traffic light in the town. And that was it. That was it. It was a one traffic light town. And so I, my dad drove me down. My dad drove me down to my job interview. And I don't know how much of an interview it was or if it was just the guy took a look at me to make sure that I might show up for work. Uh, Art Lazaro, the, the boss, the owner of the station, he interviewed me. and. Next thing you know, I'm working at the radio station. I'd gotten through the Broadcasting Institute of Maryland. I've made it through, and I have my first job in radio. And I was the sign-on guy, the morning guy. I was the guy that had to get up the first thing in the morning and um, turn the station on. And also, the thing interesting was, there was only three of us basically on staff, on the on-air staff during the week, because it was a daytimer. I would do the morning show. Someone would come in and do spell me. Then someone else would come in. And then I would be the afternoon guy as well. Basically, you worked all day. And in between, you know, you could go home, you could take a nap, you could do whatever. But the, you, the radio station was a full-time job and you worked all day long. And that was how it worked for me. And I, I, um, I was terrible. I was so bad. I have no idea why Mr. Lazaro, why Art Lazaro kept me on, other than the fact that I did show up, you know, did do my gig. And uh, as poorly as I did it, I, I was there. And I mentioned in an earlier podcast broadcast that I was living in a boarding house with uh, Ms. Hopewell. And you can't make, it's so cliche, man, that it seems like you cannot make it up. You can't, but it's true. I was with Ms. Hopewell, and when I went to meet Ms. Hopewell, the people at the station said, you need to go meet Ms. Hopewell. She has a room. She boards in a lot of the fellows that work here, and it's right around the corner from the station. It was you know, up the street and about maybe not even a half mile away, not even that far. It was just a, right up around the corner on the next block and big old rambling southern house, beautiful home, beautiful old classic southern house, white columns in the front, and big backyard. Filled with daffodils, which I will tell you about. Daffodils are big in this whole narrative. Anyway, I go meet her. I know it sounds unbelievably cliche, but I knock on the door. Now, remember, I still look like I look. You know, 1960s, 70s, wannabe hippie, long hair and blue jeans and probably, I don't know, deep purple or T-shirt or something. Ms. Hopewell says, come in. And I go in, and she's in her sitting room, she's in her parlor, and she has her Bible on her lap. She has, Ms. Hopewell is reading her Bible in the afternoon when I come, and my dad drops me off, and uh, he waits while I go in to make sure that I have the room, and she tells me what the rate was, and that I had to pay um, you know, a week in advance and a, a security deposit, and she showed me the room, which was a bedroom with a sink. It had a sink in it. 
And I think that it maybe had been a servant's room or it maybe had been one of her kids' rooms or whatever. It was small, but it was a room and it was clean. And I was, it was the room that I took. It was my first place that I ever lived away from home. This room in this beautiful old Southern house with this wonderful old Southern lady, Ms. Hopewell. And I told her that I would love to have the room. And uh, she said, well, you know, she saw my meager suitcase and uh, my guitar. And she, she's, there is no loud music. There is no cooking in the room. There's of course no, no women are allowed here. There's no noise after 8 p.m. And uh, we run a respectable place here. No smoking, no drinking. This is my home, and I expect you to treat it like that. Yeah, I mean, that you know, that was fine. That was fine. I didn't have any friends. I wasn't much of a drinker, and uh, I, I would just keep the guitar playing to during the day, and we were cool. And she was a lovely, lovely lady. And I, I will always thank her for taking me in, because I'm pretty sure she had more than 27 second thoughts about letting the lights of me in her in her home. So I went out and told my dad and my mom was in the car. They had driven me down from Baltimore about a 300 mile trip. I said, this is it, dad. I'm going to take the room and I start work tomorrow and uh, I'm now going to be living here. And that was it. I mean, my parents were, they left. And now this is hard for people that don't, didn't live then. There was not going to be any contact other than letters written back and forth and postcards, because there was no internet. There was no texting. There was no Snapchat. There was no instant communication. When my parents left, that pulled away and left and went up that little southern street and then turned right to head back toward Baltimore, I was about as alone as I'd ever been in my entire life. I didn't know anybody. I had a job in a brand new town. I had no way to contact anyone. I know that it's hard for folks nowadays to conceive of that, but that was it. I was on my own. And it was at once the most exhilarating and the most frightening and lonely experience that you can possibly imagine. And I went into that room, unpacked my clothes, Hung him up in the closet, took my guitar out. I had a cassette player um, that played music. So I put some music on. and I can't remember if I had headphones at that point. They come up later on, but I, I don't know if I had them then. And I just sat there on the bed. Because that's all there was in the room. There was no chair. There was just a bed. And I sat there. And I'm not sure that I didn't shed a tear or two. Because here I was. I was on my own at this point. So the only thing for me to do is go down to the radio station. It's the only place I knew. So I walked down to the radio station and I just kind of hung out a little bit. I didn't really talk to anybody. Charlie, the engineer, he tried to make me feel a little comfortable. Charlie was a character. He was just a wonderful old man. And he was, well, <laughs> this is really funny. I'm calling Charlie a wonderful old man, and I can guarantee you that Charlie was not as old then as I am now. But he was a great guy, really, really good radio announcer, and he was also an excellent technician. He had to be to keep that place running because 
it was the equipment in that place was old the day it was built and it just got older as the years went on big old gates turntables and the board was some military reject that had four or five knobs on it and that's about it and those knobs those three four knobs had to run everything you had switches that you had to hit you had, to, you had to move the switches in a certain way. One up and one down is this cart machine over here to play the commercials. And one up and two down is that turntable over there. And this, and you had to remember all of this when you were on the air and you had to flip these switches, man. You had to, you had to get the switches. You had to make sure the switch is in the right position or nothing would come out. You had to have two in the center, one up, three down. It was crazy. And you had to memorize it to make it work to get anything to go out over the air. Because the worst thing, of course, you can do when you're, when you're on radio, when you're doing radio, is, is to have dead air. You can't have dead air. You know, and I had a lot of dead air when I first started. But so Charlie, he's talking me through it, and he can tell that I'm nervous. And he, he, uh, he's like, man. Well, I never said man. He said shitbird. He called me shitbird. He called everybody from Maryland, from the broadcasting school, that because that's, that's how we referred to the Baltimore Orioles. And since we were from up there, we were all part of that whole thing in his mind so he's like it'll be okay it'll be okay it's gonna be you'll be fine people here will love you uh, i don't know whether he meant that or not but it was nice to have him there to be kind of a friend because mr lazaro art was busy art was the owner and the only salesman so he's out on the streets trying to get business in trying to get commercials in so we can keep this thing on the air and i can get my 400 dollars a month and so he he wasn't gruff or brusque well, yeah he was a little gruff he was a northerner guy he was a detroit guy a little little brusque for my taste but he was a good guy but he was busy you know he didn't have time to fool with us so charlie's pretty much in charge of of training us and, and and getting us on the air and showing us how things work and art was in charge of telling us when we messed up and in my case he spent a lot of time telling me that but we got it, we got it going i i'd like to say that as the time went on as I watched my days go by. I got better. I don't know that I did because the thing was, I had 90 days. I had 90 days. Mr. Jeppy would always say, at first job, no matter how hard it seems, no matter how lonely you get, how horrible it seems to be in this little town, wherever it is going to be, North Overshoe, Maine, or whatever it is, you know, East Podunk somewhere. You um you have to stick it out for 90 days. 90 days is the bare minimum. And you had pretty much, it wasn't, uh, I mean, there was no contractual kind of thing, but you knew that if you left before the 90 days was over, he was not going to work really hard to find you another job. You know, he's not going to, he's like, if you're going to bail. So I knew that everything else notwithstanding, I had to stay here for 90 days. Those first five, six days, I didn't think I was going to make it. I didn't think I was going to make it. I was lonely. I was terrible on the radio. I was making every possible mistake you could possibly make because there is no way that going to any broadcasting school, any kind of school, can teach you how to be on the radio. The only way you can learn how to be on the radio is to be on the damn radio. And it's on-the-job training. Fly by your seat of your pants you're going to make mistakes. You're going to bring the news in wrong. You're going to forget, forget to play commercials. Oh my gosh, that there was many a day when you're when you're on the when you're doing radio, 
you have a couple of logs you have to keep. Well, you did in those days. I don't, everything's on computers now. You don't have to do anything. You have to, it's ridiculously boring. I would never do it again for all of the money in the world. But you had to keep logs. You had a broadcasting log, which listed everything that happened. Six, six o'clock hour. The news comes on at 6 a.m. and 6.03 local news. And then in between where whatever the commercial was or whatever the spot was that you had to play in the news. And then 6.10, there was another, maybe another spot break with three commercials and 6.25 and on and on. In between there, in between there, you played music, you did your pattern, and you had to back time. You had, it's called back timing. You had to make sure that whatever you were doing in that hour, all the commercials, all the public service announcements, everything had to fit in that hour with your, and then when you got to the top of the next hour, when seven o'clock came up, you better be able to hit that news sounder without cutting a song off in the middle, without stopping something that needed to be played in the middle. When seven o'clock came up, it was time for that, and you had to back time into it. And I loved doing that, man. I loved figuring out how long of a record I could play and how long of a thing I could say about it or all the commercials, how many commercials I had in that hour to back time to hit that station ID right on top of the hour without cutting anything off. And I loved doing it. And I was so bad at it when I first started, man. There is many, 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 many a Frank Sinatra record or, or a Tony Bennett record that just got the summer wind was just the summer because I had to cut it off in the middle because I hadn't back timed right. So this was all learning on the job and working with equipment that would frighten people these days. But it was amazing. It was amazing. I mean, these days, your local radio station has nothing to do with your town anymore. Nothing to do with your town. They, um, it's probably simulcast from somewhere in LA or Nashville or New York. And then they record little bits and little drops, they're called, to pop in there to make it sound like it's in your town. But they're, they're not in your town. Whoever it is, Bobby Bones or Michael J. Fox or whatever they call themselves, they're not there. They sound like they're there. If you, if you travel as much as I do around the country, I can go to, from Washington, D.C., to Ocean City, Maryland, to Baltimore, Maryland, if I'm, if I'm back home visiting folks back home, and I can hear the same DJ on three different stations trying to create the impression that he's in your local town, that he's your guy, that he gives a rat's butt about your town, because he doesn't. He's just a guy making a living. There is something greatly lost by not having a guy like me that's living in your town, that sees you on the street, that has no idea what a hog future is when he turns on the microphone first thing in the morning and says, the latest farm report from Saluda has feeder hogs at $2.50 and cutter hogs. And I don't know what that is. I, I still don't really know what a feeder hog is. or what, But I read it and the farmers there listened to me read it every day faithfully and then they would see me when i would leave the station and i would walk down to the rexall drugstore and i am not making this up it was an old school drugstore block away from the station i'd walk down to the rexall i'd walk in the door it had a lunch counter this drugstore had a lunch counter 
and I would get off my shift nine o'clock, maybe 10. I don't remember. Depending on when I started, because as I said, it was a day timer. And I'd go in and the woman that worked behind the counter knew that I was one of the Woody boys. That's what they called us, the Woody boys. And she knew me. She saw me. She heard me on the radio because everybody in town listened to the little local station. Everybody listened to us. They may not have listened to us all day long, but they tuned us in in the morning to get the school reports, to hear if the kids had to go to school, or to hear the school lunches. (laughs) We would read on the air what was going to be on the school lunch for that day. We would tell, hey, you're going to have sloppy joes, and you're going to have mashed potatoes, and you're going to have carrot sticks, and for dessert, you're going to have apple pie. And we would read this on the air, man. So people could know what their kids were going to have and decide whether they were going to let the kids have a school lunch that day. And we had a birthday club. We had the Woody Birthday Club. Oh, man. The stuff that we did to the Woody Birthday Club. <laughs> yeah, there's a list of names and there's a, there's a little you know, music playing in the background. And I am going to look around. I'm going to look around and I'm going to try to find some of the music and some of the drops and some of the the stuff that we played on the air that, that that were part of the Woody broadcast. So you can get an idea of what this radio station sounded like back then. It was out of date then. This is 50s and 60s vintage stuff. It was out of date when I went there. And it was just so corny. And I loved it so much. I love it so much, man. But anyway, you know, we had the birthday club. And the names were there. And now remember, again, no computers. This is all typewritten. This is all in a book, the Woody Birthday Club book. And people typed in, it was uh, Bubba Smith's birthday. It was it was Larry Johnson's birthday. And it was Bill Brown's birthday. And it was uh, it, it was Bruce uh, Weaver's birthday. And, and with a little music playing, music playing in the background. And happy birthday. And it's singing this, happy birthday to you. And it's, and it's singing. And of course, over the years, I mean, I wasn't the only guy that worked there that, that was like this. Over the years, the Woody Birthday Club got some interesting names in there. Now, there, down there in that part of the country, there was a, a family. There really was a family called the Hogs. And they had the Hog Realty Company. And they were actually really people. You know, the Hogs, Hog Family, H-O-G-G. And, uh, of course, that was just an endless supply of mirth to somebody like me who finds that kind of stuff incredibly funny, ridiculously funny. So, anyway, there you go, the hogs. So, of course, in the Woody Birthday Club, popping up two, three, four times a year, there would be a salutation sent out to the hog sisters, Ima and Yura. Yes, Ima and Yura Hog are having a birthday today. And we would put that in there. And whoever was doing the birthday club, Charlie or whoever was doing me or whatever, we just roll right through it and be like, wait a minute. That's not right. But there it was. I'm a, and you're a hog. And there we, we did all kinds of names in there. And uh, some of them may be a little bit too sketchy to, to say on the radio. Some of them you know. Some of you, you know, that we all of the stuff that you did when you were in high school study hall, we did on the air on the Woody Birthday Club. It was great. It was great. Anyway, so I would go down to Rexall Drugstore, man. They had a counter. They had a counter down there where you could get food. You could buy, you're in the drugstore, in the, and, and it's a lunch counter. And I would go down and the folks would know me. And when I had a few pennies, 
in my pocket. I could get a breakfast. I could get some bacon and eggs. I loved, I loved when I went, I would get a BLT, bacon, lettuce, tomato sandwich on white bread, of course, uh, with mayonnaise and a cup of coffee. And they got to know me. And they also, this is a small town, man. They also knew when I got paid. So they knew when I would come into the, into the Rexall after my show early in the month when I had a few pennies in my pocket, they would have the sandwich ready for me and my coffee ready for me when I came up to the counter. And they would say, just heard you on the radio this morning. It was some good music you were playing. And I'm thinking, nobody likes that music. <laughs> nobody likes to hear Lenny D on the organ or whatever the hell it was I was playing. But they all listened and, and you know, talked about the weather and they talked about the farm animal things and all the prices. And you were in the community. People knew you. They knew where you lived, which could also turn out to be, as you'll hear as we move on, could turn out to be something of a liability. But I was there, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the loneliness that I had been feeling, the sense of dislocation. Because remember, I had a girlfriend back in Baltimore. I had a, I had a steady girl that I didn't see anymore. And again, remember, no instant communication, no internet, no emails, no texting, no this, no that. If I wanted to talk to her or she wanted to talk to me, she had to wait till the station was off the air in the evening, had to wait till the station was off the air. And then I could call her or she could call me long distance. And again, uh, something else that's hard for people who didn't live through it to understand, long distance rates were nuts. They were nuts in those days. What you paid for a long distance telephone call in those days was crazy, man. And so... I mean, I couldn't do this too much and in the early days because every call, of course, every call that didn't wasn't collect, every call that I was dialing director through the operator was being charged to the radio station. And Art would come in and he would get the bill at the end of the month or get the bill. Uh, and then I had to pay for those calls. And, you know, early on, I was eating up a healthy part of my paycheck, a healthy part of my very meager paycheck making long distance phone calls back to my mom and back to my girl and back. It just is crazy. And then I had to stop doing it. And so we tried to fix it so she could call me. So I would be there waiting when the phone rang and I could pick it up and make sure that, you know, we had a little signal She would call uh, and let the phone ring once hang up and then call back. So I would know it was her and I would pick it up. Otherwise it could be somebody calling the radio station about, radio station business. I mean, what the hell is that? Why do you want to do it? So anyway, she would do that. And we could talk a little bit until her parents would go, you know, getting long distance bills. So that started to do what those kind of relationships did in those days when you couldn't be in constant contact with one another. You just kind of like, it started to drift, you know, and I, but I wasn't as lonely. I mean, I was lonely, but it was not the ache, was not the constant pain of, oh my gosh, what am I doing here? Because I was started to be accepted by this little community, you know, weird, hippie looking, skinny, pimply faced, fuzzy headed thing that I was with my Bob Dylan style railroad cap on and, and uh, just, but they, they liked me and they knew me. Well, I don't know whether they liked me or not, but they were used to seeing me and I was used to seeing them. And I began to notice that, um, you know, some of these Southern girls down here, some of these girls down here are pretty. These Virginia girls are 
quite attractive. And I loved hearing a Southern accent. I still do on a woman. I think a Southern accent on a woman is like honeysuckle. Maybe honeysuckle on a, on a salt marsh breeze. It's just this beautiful, sensual, sensory thing. I love hearing it. And yet, I think a Southern accent on a man makes him sound like a goober. <laughs> it just, it just, uh, you know, it's like as attractive as it is on a woman. That's exactly how ugh, it struck me coming from the guys. And also, come on, the guys were hard on me. They were hard on me. They're like, who the hell is this boy? Look at that hair on him, would you? Would you look at that hair? You know, that, that kind of thing. I'll look at this thing. My God, where's he come from? You know, so yeah, well, there'll be more about that coming on. I, I, I had a few uh, interesting encounters with some of the local fellas, especially after I started having other kinds of encounters with some of the local girls. But there I was. There I was in Gloucester, Virginia, living in my room. And it was starting to turn out to be okay. Starting to turn out to be okay. I got a little bit extra money because somebody that worked at the high school. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Did you, did you get that? I said high school. I didn't say high school. I said high school because that's how they said it down there. All of a sudden, when my brain clicks into going in back down, go back down there, all of a sudden I can hear that accent and I start doing it. That's so, so amazing how, how the mind works. They haven't been down there in, I don't know, 40 years. But anyway, someone who worked at the high school decided they liked the sound of my voice and they wanted me to do play-by-play for the high school football team. And I got into this radio thing in the first place because I wanted to do sports and wanted to do news. And as much as I loved music, and I was obsessed by music, and still am, by the way, the reason I wanted to do this was sports and talk and news. And so I got a a gig doing the local high school games, doing the play-by-play. And that was great. I mean, that was, I truly, truly loved doing that. I, I, that was fun. And I actually, actually got pretty good at it. So good at it that later on, I actually did a few high school games in bigger markets because I I liked doing it. And I had an affinity for spotting the players and affinity for getting to know a little bit about the players. And at the time, I think I'm trying to remember it all kinds of rolls together as the years go on. I think they had a pretty good high school team. They had a pretty good team. So that that was fun. So, but there we are. There we are. We're sitting there in this little town, doing high school football, eating at the Rexall drugstore. As I mentioned in an earlier podcast, when times were tough, I was buying Campbell's soup and eggs and putting it into the sink in my room and running the hot water on it so I could come home at night and have lukewarm soup and sort of boiled eggs and 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 lived that way and getting back and forth now of course when I had some time off I wanted to get back to Baltimore wanted to get back to see my girlfriend to see my mom and my dad and my sisters Wanted to get back home. Not that I had much time off because I work six days a week most of the time. So asking to, to get time off, I actually had to get Charlie to fill in for me on a, on a weekend shift, which wasn't easy to do. This is a guy that worked all day, every day, 
And so getting him to fill in on the weekends was tough. But every once in a while, he would take pity on me, and I would get home. And the only method of getting back and forth was hitchhiking. I didn't know anything about taking Greyhound buses, man. There was a Greyhound bus stop right there in front of the Rexall Drugs, but I didn't know anything about taking buses, and I wasn't going to take a bus. I wasn't going to pay for a bus. Hitchhiked back and forth from Gloucester, Virginia to Baltimore. I did it quite often, quite often. And I think about that. I think about that a lot because there were some pretty scary experiences when I was doing it. And I think about that time period. Now, think about that time period. The 70s there, early 70s, 74, 75, 76, moving on. What do we start learning about in that time period? What do we start hearing about in that time period? What do we start as a nation experience? Yes, serial killers. They pick unsuspecting long-haired radio announcers up on the side of the road, and they're never heard from again. Never heard from again. And here I am hitchhiking from rural Virginia up to Baltimore and back again. And I got to make sure, I got to make sure that I'm back in time to do my show bright and early Monday morning. So, I mean, I would start hitchhiking on a Friday evening, Friday afternoon, maybe three-ish, try to get back to home. Now, this is a three and a half, four, five-hour ride, depending on how, how you do it. Try to get back that evening, try to get back on Friday, have Saturday to spend with my family and whoever else I want to see. And then I got to hitchhike back on Sunday. And I got to get a pretty damn early start because I got to get back. And I got to make sure that I get back for Monday. So it wasn't like I could stay, okay, well, Sunday afternoon at three, I'm going to I'm gonna start thumbing then. I didn't, I was not the kind of guy that you looked at and said, oh, I'm going to give him a ride. No, I was, <laughs> I was the kind of guy that you went, I'm going to speed up when I go past that guy. That guy right there. We're not putting him in our car with our family. Not going to happen. So as I go on, I hope I can create the, the sense of disconnection that you have when you're away and there's no social media, and there's no contact, and you build your life in this space that you're in. And that's that's what changed me. That's what made me into the kind of person I became because I had to learn how to be where I was. Everyone now can be all over the world at any given moment, but I had to be in that little town. And I became part of that little town. And that little town became part of me. And that's how it all worked out. And that's why this thing is called radio. And that's why I hope you guys follow with me and stick with me on these stories. I hope you like the longer format now. I hope to get a whole lot more content in here with, like I said, with jingles and some of the commercials that I played back then and some of the music that I played. I'm going to try to get it so it's not just me rambling. But I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks so much for turning it into a real radio show. And we'll see you next time. I'm Ray Weaver. This is radio.